you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the, world. in the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times. Because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Well, hi, folks. Chris Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. Thechrisvossshow.com. Welcome to the show, people. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Be sure to watch our recent uh, coverage of CS Show uh, 2023. Uh, check out all that stuff going on. Today we're going to be talking about uh, an amazing artist you may know, Stevie Nicks. Uh, you may know her as uh, not only as a solo artist, but as an artist with Fleetwood Mac and uh, I think other iterations that she's done, contributed to. But uh, we're going to be talking with the author of the newest book that's come out on her life called Mirror in the Sky. The Life and Music of Stevie Nicks by Simon Morrison just came out October 4th, 2022. And Stevie is one of my favorite, if not, I think she's my all-time favorite female singer of all time. I just, I've always been just in love with her work and her music and the enthralling ways that she uh, captivates and everything else. So we'll be talking about her day. In the meantime, go to goodreads.com, fortunes, Chris Voss, youtube.com, fortunes, Chris Voss, LinkedIn, uh, fortunes, Chris Voss, all the properties we have across social media. Share it out, uh, refer to your family, friends, relatives. We certainly appreciate that. So today we have Simon Morrison on the show to talk to us about his amazing new book. He specializes in 20th century music, particularly Russian, Soviet, and French music with special interest in dance, cinema, aesthetics, and historically informed performance. Uh, this is based on primary sources. He has conducted archival research in St. Petersburg, St. Petersburg, Stockholm, Paris, London, New York, Washington, D.C., Copenhagen, and most extensively in Moscow. Hopefully he didn't stay on any, uh, uh, stories that were above the, the bottom floor stories. You, you always, you always want to stay on the bottom floor in Moscow, wherever you stay. Uh, he's traveled to Tel Aviv, Beijing, Beijing, Beijing. What am I doing here? Uh, Hong Kong, Montreal, Moscow, Copenhagen, and Bangkok to give, uh, invited lectures and graduate seminars and devise his time between Princeton and Los Angeles. Welcome to the show, Simon. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for having me uh, and uh, for that generous, super generous introduction. Um, um, I don't know who you were talking about there, but I'll take it. And, <laughs> I was reading and, off your bio page on uh, your website. So, and, uh, uh, yeah, super great to be with you. So, whoever you had write that, I mean, they did a they did a good job. So there you go. <laughs> but I'm sure you're living it. Uh, so give us your dot coms wherever you want people to find you on the interwebs to get to know you better. I'm, uh, I have my own webpage, which is just simonamorrison.com. Um, the reason I put the A in there, besides it being my middle initial, is that there is another Simon Morrison in this world. Uh-huh. Somebody in the UK who actually works on uh, dance club music. So You know, you uh, can hire hitmen to do that. It's illegal, but... Well, the thing is, uh, frequently um, he ends up being a specialist in ballet, and I end uh-huh. up being somebody who actually does a lot of rave, uh, you know, events. Uh-huh. Uh, but anyway, um, so yeah, simonamorrison.com, and, and uh, that's some pictures and, and various things there. So you've written several books on uh, different music, the Russian opera, et cetera, et cetera. What made you write about Stevie Nicks as opposed to, say, Nickelback? <laughs> <laughs> Had to get my Nickelback jab in there. <laughs> Reminds me, I was talking uh, to this um, former VH1 and MTV producer, Eddie Dalva, who actually said that we all had to suffer at various periods in our career with certain groups. And I said, which ones did you have to suffer with? Like, you know, and I, I, he said sticks. But <laughs> I, would in, I would throw in, yeah, I know. I was like, what? Okay. But anyway, um, how I got to this project was um, I, like you, have listened to Stevie Nicks' music for a long time. Um, she's been with us for a long time. And um, I was into Fleetwood Mac a little bit as a kid. And I was really into this uh, experimental, I guess, double album of theirs called Tusk, which came out in 79. I was really into that. And, um, but I just listened and it was kind of like, you know, not off, you know, the, you go to the office and you teach, you know, symphonies and, and you come home and then you listen to music that, you know, you kind of grew up with and you really loved. And I had a conversation with a music editor at uh, University of California Press and, uh, she, um, was really interested in the idea of a book about Stevie. And, uh, 
she raised the idea as a possibility. And I said, well, you know, it's not really my beat to do popular music research, um, but um, I'm really into her music. And uh, because during COVID, when I was here in L.A. a lot, um, I took advantage of that. And I took advantage of the fact that all these musicians were no longer on tour and they were hanging around at home got to go to the studios and so forth and actually uh, spent a good chunk of time doing research for it. And um, yeah, and worked up this book, um, which was kind of, I guess, a passion project, labor of love, et cetera, et cetera, about her career. And, you know, with some points to make, but basically <clears throat> really for, I think unlike other biographies, I tried to kind of like, you know, yeah, talk about the music more in more detail than about all the, you know, bad behavior and, and rock and roll lifestyle. The rock and roll lifestyle. We kind of expect it from, from our rock and roll things. She's always been an interesting character, uh, because she really embodies a lot of mysticism and, um, and, and just there, there's something that's cloaked in it. The Eagles kind of have that same sort of ability to write that way with like Hotel yeah. California and stuff. So was it, is, was it the music or was it just trying to, I know there's a few other biographies of her that are out. Uh, was it just trying to write a better, biography on her and and something was closer to the the mark um i i just wanted to I, when i read the other biographies you know i i don't i'm not somebody to criticize other people's stuff because goodness knows that's what we all do all day but i i um i actually wanted to know more about you know how these great songs were written and mm -hmm. what was going on in the studio and why why somebody who actually generated so many huge hits for fleetwood mac and then on her own was never, you know, in the biographies, even the biographies dedicated to her that seemed to be, you know, full of love for her, didn't kind of respect her musical um, wow. talent. They respected her persona and the fact that she could captivate an audience and the, what you were referring to, the kind of mysticism, mm -hmm. and that appearance that she put on and adopted from various things she'd read and really liked. And so I, I thought, actually, this, you know, in responding to this California Press book, you know, they said, well, write something that, you know, everyone can read and, you know, enjoy but, but also talk about the making of these hit songs, and that would be a contribution, and that would also do her talent, um, innate gift for melody, you know, some justice. I think that was the kind of way I went to, about it. There you go. So uh, years ago, in the 90s, back when bootlegs were kind of half legal, there was kind of a weird Italian thing going on. They hadn't cracked down on before the Gantt. Uh, I think it was the Gantt Treaty. Um, I bought a uh, bootleg of the first album that her and um, her and the guitarist uh, did together. That was the impetus for them getting noticed by Fleetwood Max. I think producers or engineer or something they referred to yeah. um, to to make Fleetwood. Uh, do you start all the way going back to that, or is there a starting point? In, in yeah, I start. Well, I start with like you know, um, oh, you know, when she was born. <laughs> okay. All right, so we go right back to the beginning. <laughs> really, back to the egg. No, um, the her birth date actually is actually incorrect in some places. I figured really? might, as well, might as well straight that out. Straighten that out. That'll be my contribution. Mm -hmm. No, I um, I started because her granddad was a country music singer. Uh, in Arizona, and he rode the rails, picking and a singing. And um, she always talked about how important her grandfather was to her. And so um, she talked also, and various other people talked about when she was a little girl, she actually um, hung out at a tavern with her granddad, and they'd do little songs together. And, you know, I, in my nerdy way, I got really obsessed with where was this tavern, where was this bar that Stevie Nicks started her career at? Oh, wow. I found it. <laughs> and, uh, it's actually here in Altadena. Um, it's not in Arizona at all because her, her dad for a while owned a bar. Anyway, um, so I started there and then I, I moved up through, um, she moved around a lot as a kid because her dad was a, a beer executive, um, Lucky Lager and all these other defunct brands. And he really became a huge kind of food and beverage and, you know, kind of corporate executive type. And they moved around a lot. And so I, um, sort of just followed her, you know, and worked out the chronology of where she was and the various high schools she went to, more than one, various middle schools, and then talked about the fact that she got involved early on with this band called Fritz in the Bay Area, which was a really amazing group of kids who memorized a huge amount of music, their own and others. And um, she um, joined that group um, as the singer on request of her boyfriend, who was Lindsay oh, wow. Buckingham. And so Lindsay Buckingham was this 
you know, bass player, self-taught, and an amazing self-taught guitarist. And um, he signed up with this group out of high school, and um, they needed a singer, and he brought her on board, and, and that's how they got going. And that led them, uh, after this group, Fritz, sort of disbanded, um, but was noticed by Keith Olsen, that producer, that led to that album you were referring to, the bootleg of mm-hmm. the, the album, which was just the two of them, Buckingham Knicks, and, uh, which is a really fabulous album, and yeah. everybody wondered, why isn't this reissued? Why isn't this available, you know, broadly? And, um, you know, you can go and listen to it online anywhere nowadays, but it's a really wonderful charged album. It's unconventional. It's some of the songs are very long, but, you know, you really hear the gift that she had and he had and guitar really dominates that album. And, uh, but the two of them, because they don't get along anymore, can had never able to agree on, on me releasing this record, you know, you know, their, their, their drama is, is, you know, is legendary as you know. Yeah, I mean the the everyone's heard the, the the stories over and over again, or should have heard, you know, of, of rumors and the breakups between her and the late uh, Christy Christy McVie and her husband, who was the basis for Fleetwood Mac, and then Lindsay and Stevie. Uh, it it's uh, you know, but you you hear the pain and the the loss and the you know it comes through the music and you know great experience artists experience these you know cathartic events loss pain and stuff and they they share that through their art with us and we find a resonance in that in our own lives and our own losses and uh i mean you, you kind of can look at that music and go it may not have been rumors may not have been so great if it hadn't have been for all the personal strife going on maybe yeah i agree and i think that that was their kind of double bind um mm-hmm. they i mean i can't personally imagine where you're in these intense relationships and that band, that band, they, they moved around, they had each other as boyfriend, girlfriend, and then other people in the crew, you know? And then when these things broke up as they did with young people, those things are very volatile and volcanic. And, and yet they were contracted to be in a studio together and it must've been terrible at times. <laughs> um, as much as it, it sounds like so much fun, you know, all of them in the bed together. Um, it, there was, I know that from talking to Ken Calais was, the producer of rumors mm-hmm. and he can't listen to rumors. Cause he said, which was astonishing to me. He said, I, I can't listen to that record. He said, I, I, I might put my whole life into that record. 6,000 hours, you know, 6,000 hours. And, um, and he just said that there were times when Stevie Nicks and Lindsay Buckingham would be at each other's throats. Jeez. And then they'd have to go into the studio to sing, you know, you were I know, loving you. <laughs> and, and likewise, and this went around and around. So they had to put on this kind of, game face and yet as you point out you know it's it's like there's this old joke about like 19th century music that's like songs that are ironic Mm -hmm. and making fun of people's sadness and sentiment but somehow the pain is still there and the pain is still real you know that that i think is the interesting thing about rumors it's a lot of you know go your own way kind of f you kind of songs and that's a big power anthem we get that uh, but then a lot of the dreams, you know, that you know, accidental masterpiece, mm-hmm. uh, all of these other songs really come from a place of, I don't know if it's, you can say melancholia or but deep sorrow, sure, and a lot of regret. And yet, and then, and then it's, you know, famously um, that they, Lindsay Buckingham and Stevie Nicks broke up pretty early on as a couple. They were mm-hmm. not with each other in rumors really and you know and they weren't with each other but they still had that this incredible bond of growing up together and going to high school together and learning music together that kind of pulls them together even though there's just such fundamental differences in their personalities and kind of kind of through your whole life like most people don't go through you know it it shaped their whole life i mean they're the 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 song landslide is you know largely about them and seeing some of their solo performances or the performance they've done of it um, are really beautiful. And so they're, they're kind of tied together through history. It's, it's a really, it's a really interesting kind of love story, romance story, breakup story, still love someone, you know, through about your whole life or you kind of have to, cause I can't imagine being an engineer on that project and being like, you see a huge fight where like, <laughs> like you mentioned they're in each other's throat and you're like, Hey, can you guys, uh, can you guys go in the studio? We need a cut of uh, some lyrics, uh, some background. Uh, can we can we all do that now? Are you done fighting? We need to get along for five minutes while I cut this. Um, yeah, it was literally that. It's like get back in there. I think at times, and oh, and if you if you don't have the motivation, here's a little bit of you know 
Magic Coke. Yeah. Magic Bump. <laughs> Gotta love the 70s. There you yeah. go. The, you the mentioned when when cocaine was thought to be totally healthy for you. <laughs> there you go. Well, I, it has vitamin something, and I don't know what I don't know what, vitamin C, but that's for yeah. cocaine. I don't know. There's a joke there somewhere. Uh, so you cover the albums. You you talk about how the songs got built and everything. Is that correct? Yeah, I do that, and I um, try as much as possible to. Um, you know, she she doesn't remember a lot of her past, but um, a lot of the lyrics do. And so I was able to actually kind of uh, listen and think about the words she was using and think about, which tells you a lot about her inspirations and the things she read and the art she loved and, you know, even the historical things that she was into. Um, and um, I was able to kind of really, I tried to, um, um, you know, find this sort of whole texture of her creative upbringing and sources through the music. And and I also, I actually really wanted to, I focused a lot on demos. I mean, you mentioned bootlegs earlier. And mm-hmm. I actually, because some of the songs that she really cared about um, had a rough time getting on record because of other members in Fleetwood Mac and logistics mm-hmm. and band politics, I really, and then even in her solo career when she was working with various producers like Jimmy Yovine and she was, you know, involved with Prince briefly and, and uh, um, Tom Petty. Um, you know, she, she, a lot of songs ended up not being recorded. You know, wow. I, there's all sorts of reasons. And, and yet I, I found in those demos um, some really, some real gems and, and wanted to talk about those, the sort of raw kind of material. Wow. And you talk about what kept them from getting on the albums and stuff? I do because um, there are some basic things like there's a song, a song that ended up on a sort of B side and in a later edition of, of rumors, you know, called silver spring, which is a popular song of hers. And, you know, there's various stories as to why that didn't end up on rumors. And one was that it's about Lindsay Buckingham and he was offended by it. So uh-huh. we're going to not put it on. The other was that actually, no, we actually need to give all the band members and, you know, a chance to have their songs on the record and you have a couple. So that's enough. And another was, it was too long. And, you know, there's all, but um, so, but there was also periods when I actually listened to some of the songs, like the song she did for Tusk, Sarah. And the demo of that is like 16 minutes long. Really? Wow. Yeah. And then, but on the record, it's only five or four, right? When the single, mm-hmm. and like, well, what happened? Like who cut it and what, what was lost, if anything, you know? And so I tried to like, sort of think about She's on her own with a cassette or and a hot mic or live mic somewhere, and she records it. She writes out all this poetry, um, and it's maybe simpler music. It's not produced with twenty four, you know, forty eight tracks as it would be. Um, but like, what is you know what what is going on musically there that gets changed in the studio and gets kind of commercialized or you know put into this beautiful kind of applesauce harmonized kind of sound? You know, so I was interested in that process as well. So I tried, I tried. In answer to your question, were you able to get uh, any interviews with her or any anything like what that? What I did with her was um, I actually started. I I heard um, that that she has a really tight circle. Yeah, and what um, so it would be kind of pointless, but nonetheless, I I persisted. What I did was I um, contacted um, by chance. I actually met somebody who was close friends with her manager, Howard Kaufman, who's who's now dead but um, um, long time. And um, through that person got a hold of um, Karen Johnston, who's Stevie's day-to-day person. And what I decided to do was just tell them that I'm going to write this book. Um, I'm not interested in actually talking and interviewing and harassing you. I'm not going to do that. I'm writing an appreciation, but I will send you the material just to show you the kind of book it is. And um, just to sort of show that it was on the up and up and it wasn't going to be gossipy because what my understanding was from their side was that because of the ways in which um, some of the the bad things that happened were turned into kind of tabloid stuff, some of the muckraking journalism and the fact that she, in terms of her troubles, uh, has given lots of interviews about those. Um, they were very like kind of, they, I think the idea was they'd been burned yeah. you know, by other yeah. writers. So my approach was actually the back end. It's like, look, I'll find out all of this stuff about your upbringing and send it to you. <laughs> you know, So that was my project was back end. And then um, just sort of sending material as it went along and not expecting anything. And, and also realizing that um, 
because, you know, like all of us, I mean, I, I don't remember very much of my teen years and, and earlier. And, you know, that a lot of that stuff is forgotten or misremembered and things get confused that maybe I would just actually go at it as a kind of more, you know, archaeological kind of project and actually then actually dig up things and present them to her and actually just sort of try and earn the respect or trust, I guess, through actually showing that this was actually, again, an appreciation um, initially, there was a freak out um, from that side about the fact that, oh, he's a he's a music prof. Right. <laughs> you know, so he's going to like come down on the fact that, you know, she doesn't have music education. Right. But, uh. you know, historically, all the greatest musicians are actually people who don't come out of conservatories and so forth. Right? Isn't that Paul McCartney, uh, Jeff Lynn of ELO doesn't read music. Neither does Paul McCartney. Neither do a lot of the people that actually composed music before music notation existed. Wow. <laughs> they, they didn't read music either. Anyway, so I, um, you know, my, my sense is like some people have uncanny musical gifts and uh, irrespective of whether they can name chords and do that sort of stuff. And let's see, you know, what I can do to sort of try and bring that out in this in this text there you go hi folks here's Foss here with a little station break hope you're enjoying the show so far we'll resume here in a second uh i'd like to invite you to come to my coaching speaking and training courses website you can also see our new podcast over there at chrisvossleadershipinstitute.com over there you can find all the different stuff that we do for speaking engagements if you'd like to hire me uh training courses that we offer and coaching for leadership management entrepreneurism uh podcasting corporate stuff uh with over 35 years of experience in business and running companies as a ceo uh, i think i can offer a wonderful breadth of information information and knowledge to you or anyone that you want to invite me to for your company. Thanks for tuning in. We certainly appreciate you listening to the show and be sure to check out chrisvossleadershipinstitute.com. Now back to the show. So, the, you know, I, you, you've given me a new mission. I got to go find all these demos of hers. I'm, yeah. I'm obsessed. I have, a, I have a ton of singles. I think a ton of uh, bootlegs <laughs> that I bought in the nineties. Uh, I used to buy like all those things back in the nineties. You know, uh, we've touched on Tusk. Tusk was an interesting thing, uh, in given, well, it was interesting from all sorts of aspects. Let's talk a little bit about that. One of my favorite tracks of Fleetwood Mac is Tusk. I don't know why I love it, but I just love it. And of course, Sarah, what a, what a timepiece, uh, signature sort of song for her. Yeah, so um, Tusk is is a great track. I mean, I love it too. And actually, when I got that record, that was the that was the single. Uh, Sarah came along later, and that was the one song I, when I sat around with my rock and roll friends. Like, okay, what is this kind of like easy listening or weird record? This is a song. <laughs> we, this is a track we can get into. And that the Tusk that 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 was actually something that they used as a set break um, <laughs> when Fleetwood Mac was on tour. Uh, Mick Fleetwood would just get that going, that that, that, that pattern going. Wow. And so they, he had it kicking around. And what they decided to do was um, kind of fascinatingly for this. This record, you know, generated, you know, twice as much music as is on that album. And um, they, um, they uh, decided to actually work that up into a kind of set break and um, one of the things that uh, Mick Fleetwood got interested in uh, was actually bringing in, you know, make, turning it into a kind of outdoor sort of marching tune. And so they literally, when the Dodgers were out of town, they actually um, booked Dodger Stadium here and uh, worked with the superior marching band in Los Angeles, which is USC, Trojans, rather than the UCLA group. And um, in a, a hot afternoon, they, they had the band sort of strutting around, and you see Stevie there twirling a baton and the video of the making of it, and they're all drinking Heineken at 1 p.m. And uh, and John McVie's out of town. He was in Hawaii, so they just had a picture of him there. <laughs> and, uh, really? and they actually, yeah, they literally have a cardboard cut out of him there. And actually, they just had the band march around, and they, they I mean, because Lindsey Buckingham is a, is a very good harmonic here, he actually wrote up the chords for them to actually play over and over again, and they recorded that multiple times and then mixed it into this song that had this kind of primitive vibe um and um it was a song that you know it's 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 got a raunchy undertone and tusk you know it's it's a reference to the male 
member. And, oh, uh, I did not know that. Yeah, I, yeah. I learned so something. That actually offended the, the, the um, Christine and, and Steve. We were not happy about the title of that record. Wow. Tusk. And um, you notice they put on the cover, there's that white dog is barking. I was uh, belonged to uh, the producer, that dog on the cover. And, and they meant to make it kind of look like the White Album in terms of its weird experimental nature. But mm. that one track, that one track was kind of the lad's track, if you will. <laughs> and, uh, wow. And, um, and, you know, obviously it's, it's the second last song on the record and before um, Christine McVie's um, uh, final track comes on. And uh, it was it was the single, and it was something that presented them with a problem on tour because of the fact that it required marching band. They had a hard time; like people wanted to hear that track, and you know, <laughs> how are you going to do it? It's like Queen doing Bohemian Rhapsody live, you know? Yeah, <laughs> a real yeah. problem. Um, but um, yeah, and then and then uh, you know, Tusk, Tusk. You know, nowadays <sighs> it's hard to believe this, but because rumors sold like forty million copies. Mm-hmm. quickly and because it was such a huge seller that it, it graced the annual report of warner you know they put that that wow. was there and so they had you know they threw all this money at the band to kind of do the sequel to rumors which wasn't going to happen <clears throat> with lindsey buckingham in his space he was and the other members kind of splintering um and tusk only sold only four million copies and that was considered a bust, wow you know? and four yeah. million is massive but you know, given that, uh, what they were expecting. And, and I think that the one, the one thing I heard about many times is when they turned in Tusk, you know, here's the, here's the record, here are the tapes to the executives. They literally like screaming and pulling out their hair because, you know, where's the hit, where's the single and so forth. But, and then the other problem Tusk had is one of the radio stations in LA decided to, when it, the minute it came out, play the whole album without commercial break. Wow. So every kid in town could just record it on their cassette player and not follow them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one of the other interesting things about that album was at the time, it was one of the most highest cost produced albums. I believe two million, one to two yeah. million were the costs on it. And it was extraordinary for, and yeah, I think they were building their own fucking studio at one point. And right. they, well, they did. They renovated Village. I went there to see Stevie Nicks' bathroom. Uh, she has her own bathroom here, which is with with um, and uh, Village Studios. This is here, just on the edge of Santa Monica, and uh, uh, apparently they have Christmas parties and things, and you know, and people love to use that bathroom because it's Stevie Nicks. <laughs> so they renovated the studio. They put in um, zebra. Do they, for a does it have a Does it have a mirror sink? Uh, this is a joke there. Does it come with razor blades and a mirror sink? I don't know. <laughs> it has. It's it's sparkly, and it actually has two. <laughs> Two toilets. I love you, Stevie. I'm not making fun of you. No. We've all done it. Uh, and it has Mick Fleetwood sort of armchair, and it's got the zebra wood for acoustics. Ah. The, whole, the whole thing is very cool. And it. um, and uh, it's it's a wonderful, wonderful studio with a great history to it. Um, all sorts of amazing albums were done in there. And, yeah, they renovated this space. But And, you know, they had the catering for, you know, all the fineries they desired and then private planes and all of that stuff. But, you know, in the end... Um, despite all of that being sunk into production, Lindsey Buckingham kind of did a lot of that album at home. You know, he really he kind of just retreated from the band and he would do weird stuff. Like he, he played some of the drum sounds and he'd go in his bathroom and just whack things. He wanted that, that resonance. And he, you know, he taped, you know, he lay on the line on his back and shouted himself hoarse and did all sorts of strange things. I mean, he got into a really bad kind of place. Um, making that record, and so it was, it was hard, I think, to assemble for the producers. Um, and um, you know, there there were songs that well ended up on other records that they did a cover, a kind of Beach Boys like song called "Farmer's Daughter," which seems to be on the live album of Fleetwood Mac, but because it sounds live, but in fact um, was something they mocked up in in the studio while they were doing Tusk, and then they just added some pretend live sounds and stuck it at the end of their live record. So. Mm. It, there was a lot of directions that record could have gone in. And um, I find it because it's so unruly. It's like the first track of Tusk is um, this slow kind of chill Christine McVie tune. And it's all honeydew. And it's kind of got this easy listening vibe. And you think you're going to get sucked into this space. And then the next tune is this kind of raunchy punk thing. And it's like, you know, you're just getting whacked over the head by the thing you were supposed <laughs> to you thought you were actually going to be in this nice space. And then, 
you know, you're just getting torn up. You know, it's, it kind of assaults you that way. It's, there it's, you it's, go. Somebody likened it to like a Venus flytrap. It just mm-hmm. like grabs you as a listener and then, and then you're, you know, kind of thrown to the winds. It's and then I imagine you cover how she moves, you know, kind of into her solo career and she puts out her first album and then that kind of takes off and it, it becomes apparent that everyone's kind of starting to go their own way solo wise. Yeah. Um, she was gone before Tusk. Um, and one of the oddities was they just, they knew she was this huge superstar on her own mm-hmm. and that she wanted to be on her own because she just wasn't getting the, I suppose, respect and attention due. And so one of the Mick Fleetwood, who was the manager of Fleetwood Mac, kind of not so expertly, proposed for a while that he would manage her as well as Fleetwood Mac, and she would do the band as well as a solo act. But that splintered, and in the end, she she signed up and on with Modern Records and uh, and began her solo career with uh, Jimmy Yovine, and actually then you know fell into that '80s sort of synth sound, synth pop sound, and actually became one of the first singers associated with that. She changed everything to actually fit into this new direction and where music was going. Yeah, it, it and, and it just exploded, too. I mean, between Tom Petty and uh, uh, Don uh, from the Eagles, Don... Uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and just, to, it was an explosive album, just uh, this huge with Belladonna and then The Wild Heart. Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting. So you talked to her, uh, you talked to her solo career, and what kind of goes on in her life. There's that moment where she comes out on Letterman and everyone sees that she's put on a lot of weight and she got a lot of blowback for that. I remember I was surprised by it because I'm a huge Stevie Nicks fan and no one hasn't seen her in years. And, uh, she's talked about, it, I think in some different interviews and stuff. Do you cover that area of her life? And I do. Um, she, um, was not the worst cocaine addict in the band. Um, I think that, um, <laughs> That honor, dubious as it is, goes to Mick Fleetwood. Um, they all talk about this themselves. But yeah. um, she um, was pretty badly um, addicted. And um, that's not the reason why she put on weight. The reason she put on weight was coming off of cocaine. Yeah. Some doctor, I think Kieran Robertson, that she's never named. And, and that's a good thing for him because she. I think she refers to him as Dr. Fuckhead a couple of times. But wow. he, he got her, uh, started giving her Klonopin. And uh, clonopin, um, and then upping and upping and upping and upping the doses, and um, she gained weight because of that. And then coming off of it, where she had to go cold turkey, and actually was in a facility, um, um, a Catholic facility for addiction. Um, she went in there for about a month, and uh, it was harrowing coming off of that. And she describes that as like. You know, like, like feeling like her skin was going to come off. It was just horrible. Yeah. Yeah. And they used part of the treatment was acupuncture and various other kind of uh, means. But but that's that's the reason for the weight gain and coming off of it was just um, completely hideous. And unfortunately, you know, um, you can hear the, the taxing of her voice and some of that. I guess if you want to call it suffering. Um, on albums like you know Street Angel and so forth, so it's there's um, it's it's hard to kind of listen to a couple of those records knowing that it's and to look at some of the videos even to to see somebody who's you know really um, yeah really has a problem and um, the fact that she got over that and kind of, frankly they all did yeah um, I think getting old does and and just realizing mortality and you need to look after yourself and that she's now in her seventies and still singing with an amazing voice. Yeah, an amazing voice. It shows you that, you know, she really did look after herself and had some people help her out there. You know, you, you, you brought something to my attention. Uh, Street Angel, uh, I, I like the album, but, uh, I didn't like it as much as there was a lot of magic, especially in the engineering recording that went on to rock a little. Um, it's a great album. It's a great album. Just start to finish. Like that's one of the, Rock Little is one of those albums and some of her albums and, uh, I think Wild Heart, um, and the first one, um, there's some albums that I've had that I don't, I don't, I'm just kind of singing the chorus. I have no idea what the lyrics are because the music is just so good. And I'm just kind of, blah, 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 blah. I was that way for Steely Dan for like 10 years. I never knew what a Steely Dan song meant. <laughs> I had no idea. And then I started getting the lore of it. And I'm like, holy shit, this is crazy. But yeah, they're like, actually, they are. Yeah, there's some depravity there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it starts with the name, the title yeah. of their band. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
But, uh, you know, Stevie Nicks, uh, I never realized it, but yeah, you're right. That, that's the street angel. I wasn't sure if they just tried to amp her up in, in engineering and recording, uh, her voice to have that raspiness that yeah. is so iconic that, you know, she has a way of delivering it and, and you can feel the pain through her voice more than you can say from other, uh, vocal artists. But yeah, you're right. Street angel, it's all coming back to me is how raw that really sounds in her voice. Yeah, and there's a couple of tracks that she wrote that are about treatment. She she wrote a song that ended up, I think, on Tango in the Night called Welcome to the Room, Sarah. Mm. So when she checked in, she went under the name Sarah. And, uh, Holy shit. And so, and you listen to that song, and it's, it's, I mean, Lindsay fixed it up and made it work on Tango in the Night, but it's really a really grave song. And um, wow. she, a couple of things, some of the songs she wrote, were about movies she watched during that period of treatments, books, and things like that, and um, very, very painful. And yeah. uh, and you know, it's like, yeah, how do you talk about it? You know, you have yeah. to talk about the you have to talk about the context of it, um, and at the same time, um, you know, you can't sugarcoat the fact that you know that there was a lot of things that she herself rejected about this. She wouldn't. I think she doesn't play anything or sing anything from Street Angel and probably wishes it, it didn't exist or existed in a different way. And so you just have to acknowledge that stuff and then talk about how, you know, what happened afterwards and how she be, she reasserted herself and was kind of resurged, you know, in, in consciousness. Um, and also because of all the influence she had on other singers, you know. Yeah, uh, so many female artists look up to her. Yeah, because she paved the way for them. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, you, you, I imagine you talk in the book. What's interesting about a lot of her albums is sometimes they were produced or, or engineered by people she had relationships and love with. And she, she was a great lover of men. And she, I think she, I mean, what comes through in her music and her writing is she really, you know, was a passionate lover and she really cared. And so the breakups and, you know, the, the ups and downs of that, but working with people, you know, that are producing your album and stuff, uh, kind of created some issues for her. it did. And I, I, this is this, you know, she had a relationship intense with Henley, um, mm-hmm. Joe Walsh, um, mm-hmm. Jimmy Yovin, um, mm-hmm. others, some, some that we know, some that we, that we don't. Um, and, um, including, you know, relationships with people that, you know, surprisingly aren't in the music business and are just, you know, school teachers, and <laughs> you, know, you know, regular people. One of the problems she has is because she's a superstar, it's hard for her to go out on a date, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, she has to, you know, she has a very private life and, and socializing means going over to, you know, a house of somebody she knows and having movie night at their place kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but anyway, but the pro- the... I, I thought about this and I noticed that the people that she's been with her whole life and her closest to and trusts are generally women, um, girlfriends from the past and so forth. And relationships, you know, it's not it's not our concern to see what goes on in a relationship, but there seems to be a lot more kind of transactional um, and shorter, like in the moment kind of relationships besides Lindsay. Mm-hmm. And so something like, you know, Jill Walsh's that relationship with him is very much about being on the road together, and you know that whole experience. And um, although she she said he had an amazing magnetism, and I heard this from <laughs> Christine Casey, who was uh, who wrote a book about him called Rock Monster. <laughs> and, uh, she, she was a former um, appropriate adult entertainer, a stripper, and she uh, she um, became involved with him and wrote a, a memoir about like how crazy that was. And um, and she and I did a couple of book events together related to this. But yeah, I mean, Joe Joe seems to have had an incredible magnetism. Henley obviously is, is a great artist in his own right, so that mm-hmm. relationship you can understand. But obviously, it's like part of it was that she was above them in terms of her fame, and that I think was hard for some of those guys. Tom Petty, she really was drawn to, yeah, um, creatively more than anything else. And I think that she probably. You know, had he been more open to hanging with her and bringing her into the Heartbreakers fold, that would have been a replacement for the whole Fluid Mac apparatus. But he kind of kept kept her at a distance, and you know, they traded demos and things back and forth. But the the um, the thing I noticed was that yeah, the the relationships 
oh, they interfered. I mean, with with the creativity in some instances, despite mm. the fact that some of these guys she was with actually really kind of contributed to it. So, you know, stop dragging, you know, my heart around or don't come around here no more, which is a Tom Petty track, was actually something that she might have recorded. You know, it I think about, it was about Joe Walsh coming to her place and she's like kicking him out saying, don't come around here no more, <laughs> you know, or, <laughs> One of these artists, you know, so it's it's a lot of kind of weird kind of comedy about relationships that are built into some of these stories. But um, Tom Petty, that was, I think, the, the closest to a, a true love for her creatively. That yeah. might have been, you know, a different kind of relationship. But, you know, Gypsy's always been uh, a, there are some of her songs I've been singing all my life. So I've dated all my life. And so a lot of her songs resonate with me um, for my relationships and stuff. And Gypsy was one that always uh, resonated with me because of women who've come and gone in my life. And, uh, you know, she is dancing away from you now. You know, there, there are times when you can see the mark where you've, you've crossed that threshold of the relationship where it, you're on the downside and it's just a matter of time till it's done. And I'm sure that was, you know, her case with Lindsay Buckingham and, and others. But, um, I, I, I didn't know until she, I, I think it was she came out or Don Henley came out and said that, that she'd aborted his baby and that was where the child was enough line comes from in gypsies. Did you find any resonance to that? Is that still true or was it true? Um, I believe that's true. Um, the basic story besides, I mean, gypsy is um, to some degree, it's about a childhood friend. Um, mm -hmm. And um, one of her closest childhood friends was a person named Sarah Racor. Mm -hmm. and, you know, the song Sarah is partly Sarah Racor, whom, she was close with and ended up with Nick Fleetwood for a while and married him. Um, but yeah, that the name of this child might've been Sarah. Um, wow. that, that's a story that she's confirmed. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's, um, I think one of the, one of the things I noticed, um, working on, on this project and, um, reading everything she said and thinking about it was that, um, and she's asked this a lot in interviews and really bristles. They're like, you know, you've never married and you've never had yeah. children. And she says, well, you know, so, you know, and then, but somehow like, what, have you lost something because of rock and roll or, or do you regret anything like that? And, and she actually, you know, I think her attitude is like, just because a relationship ends doesn't mean it's a bad relationship. That's true. Um, does and just because she's um, technically single doesn't mean she doesn't have you know a huge family of people that are close to her and various adopted kids that some of those adopted goddaughters she's going to will her diaries to. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of that there, and I think also that um, yeah, I mean I just think that she kind of has earned. Not not just her privacy, but also the fact that she actually became a superstar kind of against the grain and with a lot of male egos in the room and a lot of testosterone and had to get past all of that. And I think the idea that she's going to be sort of defined by whether or not she's married or something is actually goes against everything that she struggled to achieve, you know, yeah. kind of independence. And um, so I, um, it's interesting to think about that and to think about um, how despite working primarily with male producers. Only Cheryl Crow is the only exception, despite yeah. collaborating with men mostly. You know, there are a few exceptions to that, but mostly men. She's, you know, all about being as her independence as a female yeah. artist is foregrounded. And she probably should have stuck with men instead of doing the Cheryl Crow thing. That's my opinion. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a couple good cuts on there, but... Uh, that, you know, that, that yeah, that... that you know, I, I find that when she got involved with um, Dave Stewart as producer as well, Crow, that there's a couple of albums at the end there that just seem to be kind of ad hoc, kind of mixed mishmashes of stuff. And then recently when she did, it's a few years ago now, um, 24 Karat Gold. Yeah. Um, which th that, that to me is an amazing album because of a couple of things. One is that she... Um, she did briefly marry this guy named Ken Anderson. Um, and he got a lot, hold of a lot of her demos and apparently like put them on a garage sale. <laughs> and suddenly a lot of these demos were on the internet, Jesus. The old songs of hers. And she's not herself somebody who hangs out on the internet, but 
she was told and heard, you know, like all this music of yours is out there. And like, and she decided to reclaim it and actually go into the studio. And she went to Nashville and with a bunch of musicians and record a lot of those songs, including some ancient songs from the sixties all the way up to some new stuff. And that album is really this an incredible survey of everything she went through and also shows how much that through it all, she still maintained this kind of country rock start. And I think that Fleetwood Mac that wasn't what she was going to be as an artist. Mm-hmm. That Fleetwood Mac was this kind of corporate invention, a kind of FM sound that wasn't political music and wasn't the blues, but was this kind of this chill out kind of suburban thing, California, et cetera, that she fell into and then dominated through her mystic persona. But that fundamentally, because of that connection she wanted to have and, and had to some degree with Petty, that kind of was the sound that she was the most comfortable with. Yeah. That country rock. And that's what that 24 karat gold recent album seems to be about. Is that she's saying, this is, this is really who I am. The whole enchilada. Yeah. In the live album she put out, uh, shortly after that, uh, or after that, I saw her, uh, at JBL and Harmon Carden every year they put on a private, uh, concert for a thousand people in a small venue, uh, at the old Hard Rock Hotel. It's changed now. I think it's called the Virgin Hotel, maybe, uh, in Vegas. But I saw her, and this was at the cusp of the pandemic. We were just starting to see reports and stuff. And so it was at the big CES show 2020. And so I got to see her and, uh, Jesus, who was the opening band? It was Pat Benatar. It was great. It was the wow. most incredible thing. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 just seeing the two of them growing up in the 80s uh, with their music was incredible. But she put on just a, a stupendous performance. Her voice didn't sound like it lost a beat. She was in great shape. She, she was, she was so great. And, and my biggest worry was, is, is that someone happened to her over COVID. And so I'm glad that she seems to survive that. She's, she's touring now. Uh, anything more we want to touch on or tease on on the book, uh, before you go? Um, well, first of all, I'm grateful, um, to be with you and to talk about it. Um, I, I just want to come back to the fact that, um, you know, if you, if any of your listeners or you want to go and find Joan of Arc, or Night Gallery, if you remember that show from the 70s, Night Gallery, Joan of Arc. She wrote, these are demos that are out there. And um, <clears throat> I find them, those two tracks in particular, although they're not fully realized, are probably are, you know, among her best songs. Wow. They're floating out there unrecorded, but you can just go and check them out. She also, um, she did music for an animated cartoon. Um, <laughs> cartoon wasn't made. Um cute song of the goldfish, you know, and um, she, uh, she actually, there was for a while um, an interest in her doing um, a film, kind of an animated film project. But I will say that probably um, she's going to release very soon um, an album of songs related to Rhiannon. Um, She's always been all about that Rhiannon story, which is a very complicated set of Welsh legends. And that's just one of the figures. And for a while, she actually wanted to do a kind of, Docu music thing about Rihanna with all of these songs, but um, that all of that music is written, and I think that that'll be just a sensational uh, record when it comes out. So she's touring with um, strangely <laughs> for her fans and for me, a Billy Joel, Billy Joel, yeah, <laughs> Billy Joel, and these huge kind of uh, arenas, um, yeah, Kansas, the Kansas Stadium, and so forth. There, I had, um, we'll see how that goes. SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles, etc. Yeah. Big, big venues. Um, and I think after that, though, I think we're going to be we're going to have this amazing kind of collection of songs vis-a-vis Rihanna. So. Well, I hope she lives forever. I was I was really bummed yeah. out about uh, Christy McVie. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it's uh, it's disappointing to see all your favorite rock and roll stars pass away. In fact, how is Joe Walsh still alive? And fucking the other two members of the Eagles are gone. Like what the fuck? Like what the fuck? <laughs> like, like that guy had way too much fun. And, and I think oh my god! I mean, well, it just tells you, right? Some, you know, you can you can work out like a fiend, and maybe that'll yeah. last five years to your life. But most of it is yeah. genetics, right? So he's lucky. Yeah, um, he's got that. He must be drinking from gone. the same well as the Rolling Stones. So there you go. Yeah, I think Jimmy Page is now seventy-eight years old. There you go. Is he still ripping off people's music? Oh, sorry, Jimmy. Oh, oh. <laughs> hey. Uh, 
<laughs> There's a lot of B minor chords out there. You can find them in a lot of. <laughs> there you go. There you go, man. Wow, it's crazy. But no, Stevie Nicks, what an amazing woman. What amazing writing she's done. What amazing uh, body of work. Um, you know, just extraordinary. I could, I could list. There's something that is magical and mystical and entrancing and all those words that you could probably find this in the Sars that I could listen to Sarah, Gypsy, Rhiannon, uh, all, all of her big hits. I can listen to those over and over again, like yeah. rock a little. I must have listened to the album rock a little, like 50 trillion times before I was like, what do the words in this thing mean? Like just her music and her ability to deliver are just are just so magical, and I, there are a few uh, artists of any caliber that, that have the quality. It's just oh, the question I had to throw to you real quick at the end here was, uh, do you think you know she had that raspy voice, and so did Tom Petty. Tom Petty had that ability to, you know, bring that pain through and that suffers you. You know, you hear it in songs like break down oh yeah, yeah you know yeah. you can you can hear it in the in in the the emotion just comes through better john lennon i think kind of had a little bit of rasp if i recall rightly or there was something about his voice the, these unique voices that you can't copy anywhere else um do you think that maybe that was why a lot of Tom petty's writing passed over to her pretty well maybe i don't know it does yeah the blend i mean she it was clearly her and buckingham's voice blended um but yeah. he he cha- changed his to match hers but i think that kind of if you will what she called the sort of swamp dog kind of <laughs> sound that petty had oh yeah we love that and that yeah. you know, because people who study country music and they listen to those voices you have like the sorrows the hardships everything about that kind of you know American experience in these tough mm-hmm. places built in there. Yeah. And they, there's something about what's called the grain, just that, that sound. Yeah. It doesn't matter the notes, the words, it's just that affect is what projects. And I think her, she's managed on one hand, despite being this incredible superstar, super famous, sells her record catalog for a hundred million bucks, right? Yeah. No one's going to feel sorry for your privileged kid growing up. And yet, there's something about the pathos or whatever that she really resonates with her audiences. Mm-hmm. And that, that duality is, is um, really distinct. And cool. uh, I think Patty got that across too. He too was a superstar, but he never lost that kind of like Gainesville, Florida kid sound. Yeah. You know? In fact, and, uh, there you, you mentioned that what was a marsh. What would you say called bog sound? Marsh sound? Swamp dog. Swamp dog. <laughs> you know, their, their first band, I forget the name of it. I think it was swamp or something like that, but their first oh, wow. band was, was out of the mud swamp sort of, yeah. you know, coming out of uh, Louisiana sort of uh, mud swamp uh, sort of music in the first iteration of their band. Hey, you know, you mentioned uh, Christine McVie, and um, she was in a band before Fleetwood Mac, and it was called Chicken Shack. That's right. In and fact, that, that's a great band. <laughs> one of my friends uh, helps run Cobas, the great music service that I just love, and they put that up. And I was like, what the hell? I didn't know about this. And uh, I went and listened to a couple of songs, and they're really good. Yeah, Chicken Shack Fritz is great, too. That's the other thing I'd say. Go online and listen to Fritz, some of that stuff. she has. You can hear Stevie Nicks in high school singing Crazy Kind of Love. It's an amazing song. You Great got song. me. <laughs> After I get off this, man, it's we're digging for demos, man. I'll get these demos. Yeah, not, yeah, not on Spotify, but everywhere else. <laughs> wow. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. We really Absolutely. appreciate it, Simon. Give us your dot com so people can find you on the interwebs, please. Sure. SimonAMorrison.com. There you go. Appreciate there you go. Thank you. Appreciate having you on as well. Appreciate our audience as well. Thanks for tuning in. We certainly appreciate you there. Uh, go to goodreads.com forward slash Chris Voss, youtube.com forward slash Chris Voss, uh, all the LinkedIn and all those crazy places we are. Thanks for tuning in. Be good to each other. Stay safe. And we'll see you next time. Nice to have us out.